Are you the first one on your block to have the latest technological gadget in your office or even in your examining rooms? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. David Wright, Assistant Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Co-Director of the Emergency Medicine Research Center at Emory University. He directs the Brain Injury Research Group at Emory University and is an NIH-funded researcher and continues to conduct both basic and clinical research in the area of acute neurological injury. Dr. Wright, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Over the year, we've heard from many of our guests discussing the challenges in, in, in translating or getting the medicine from research actually to the clinician and into the exam room. Tell me a little bit about how you've dealt with that challenge with your detect device that's used for Alzheimer's screening. Well, you are correct. It is quite a challenge. And one of the issues is that you have to know so much about both your technology, your disease, and then how to move that into the market. And that's usually quite more than one individual knows. So it requires collaboration, and it requires working with folks that, frankly, a researcher doesn't normally work with, which is business associates. Right. Businessmen. Money. You need money. Do you need a, a big backer to do it? I mean, do you need a medical device manufacturer to get involved or big pharma to get involved to really get things moving, or can you do it on a tiny budget? No, I don't think you need a big backer or venture capital or, or that kind of thing, at least not early on. And Really, what you need is you need to collaborate first with folks that have technology background, technology transfer, and technology development. It's a long process. I'll tell you, when we first started thinking about the detect device, as researchers sitting around, we decided to just first test the concept. Again, this is all at a local level. This was foundation-funded. How did you even get funding? How do you get NIH funding? You just call them up and say, hey, I got an idea. Give me some money. Most people aren't getting funding at NIH these days. It's a very difficult place to get money from now, especially for technology development. You know, NIH is a, a disease focus, and it's it's hard unless you're shooting for something called an STTR or SBIR, and these are sort of, by the time you need to go for those, you need to already have a company formed. And that's so far down the road that that funding's not usually available. Did Emory help you or did you reach in your own wallet? Reaching in your own wallet as far as time goes, sweat equity, was the initial, of course, and that's probably true of any researcher getting pilot data. We then went to the Coulter Foundation, which, by the way, is a terrific organization. Wallace Coulter, who, who created the Coulter Counter, saw a need for this translation of technology. He saw that the clinicians recognize the problem very clearly. They know what they need or they think they know what they need, but the engineers and the physicians don't talk the same language. So this program that they put together actually requires a clinician, a physician, and an engineer to write a proposal together. And that's how we were initially funded with this with this program. And how much funding do you need? I mean, do you need $50,000, $500,000? What's enough money to get started and get a, a trial going? Well, that's sort of a loaded question, and it depends very much on how complicated your product is. All right, so with Detect. Yes. So, for example, Detect, our, our first funding was $100,000. That got us our first prototype. That got us a small study to prove that we could do the immersion within the device, that we could actually block out noise and, and light, and got us probably pretty much into our initial second device. We then went back for more funding to try to test 
on the sidelines this device and that any clinical trial requires quite a bit more money. And so as you get up into clinical testing, it gets more and more expensive. At that point, you've got to either go to more foundations, go to NIH, or go somewhere else to get, get it funded. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. David Wright from Emory University. We're talking about how to get a technological gadget from idea to reality into the examining room. Dr. Wright, there's this concept known as early adopters, late adopters. Every every medical practice has usually one of each. So what's your experience been? And can you identify who's going to say, oh, that's a great idea. I want to try that immediately. Or who's going to say, you know what, I'm going to wait five years until it's been proven. Well, you are right. Physicians are known to be the hardest group to change, <laughs> to change practice. And it's not exactly clear why. I think some of the excuses we want full data before we do anything different. But even with full data, physicians are inherently hard to change. Well, uh, we did, you know, we did take a vow first, do no harm. So that's, that's exactly right. It comes I in agree. handy. It comes in handy occasionally. I, I think the concept is though, not doing could be doing harm. So. There is that that we forget about it sometime. But in any case, you're right. There are classically studied and probably many publications on a bell curve of adoption. So a small proportion of physicians or anyone accept a technology very quickly. They want to get it. They want to try it. They want to see if it works in their office. And then I think on top of that is the reimbursement issue. We are making less and less money each year, and we can't raise our prices. So what's going to make a doctor go out and buy a piece of equipment for $30,000 when, A, there's, there might not be any reimbursement, and B, well, let's just leave it at A. There, there's no reimbursement. There's, there would be no reason for him to buy that equipment. And he won't do it. So if you're on the business end, again, which I'm not a business person per se, but certainly understand the concept, you got to be smart about the way you put your device out there. The detect device, for example, a couple of things. One is that we are going to provide the device to the clinician's office, at least initially, and they'll bill for the use of the device and we'll just take a piece of that billing. That's one concept. Tell the audience, because if they haven't heard the other shows that we've done, what the detect device is. So the detect device is a portable, self-contained device for testing cognitive impairment or early cognitive impairment, MCI, early Alzheimer's. And the device takes about seven minutes to complete a, a test. And we envision this being used in the clinician's practice, much like an EKG, you know, an annual visit, or for a cognitive vital sign, for example. Right. The fourth or fifth vital sign. That's right. So in thinking about how can we actually get this into the office where, where people will use it, we've sort of tried to think, well, what would you charge for this device? How much can we get it down to? And I think what we came around to was, well, we'll just provide the device. It's, mm -hmm. it's not that big of a cost for us. That way we can update it, we can keep it you know, within the practice, keep it working. And then the physician, all they have to worry about is using it. And then they can bill, in their, as we uh, spoke before, there's actually already a billing code for uh, cognitive testing. Well, you've gone through the process of having an idea of a product, making the product, and now testing the product, and hopefully one day getting the product out. Which part of that journey is the most difficult? For me as a researcher, the most difficult part 
has been the business side of it. Figuring out, okay, we've done enough in the in the research clinic, now what do we do? The regulatory piece, the FDA approval, and is this a device that FDA wants to regulate? All of those issues are foreign to most clinicians, and they're clearly foreign, foreign to me. And so if you had to do it again, what would you do differently, knowing what you know now? I mean, how would you, how would you speed that up? I would hire more consultants. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the best way to be successful in anything surround is surround yourself, yourself with smart people. Experts. Right, that's right, right. Which our our old government used to know. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Hopefully, our new one will also. <laughs> I won't get into politics. You're a, you're a professor, correct? Assistant professor, yes. Okay, so do you do any teaching of med students or residents? I do. I wear many hats. I. I'm a clinician. I practice emergency medicine on a regular schedule in the ER at Grady Memorial Hospital, which is, serves 4.1 million people, the only level one trauma center in the area. And I teach the medical students and residents here within our program because we have a residency program. I'm the uh, co-director for research within the emergency medicine department. Wearing all those hats, do you see some of the obstacles that exist for getting a product into the examining room? Because if you, you have to teach the students. you got to teach the residents. They have to even learn that it exists. Right. There are many obstacles. Time is the number one obstacle, as with any of us. And by the time you teach it in med school, you know, half of what we learn in med school is obsolete or wrong. <laughs> by the time we get out in practice. That's absolutely true. With this device, there is something that we learn doing this, which is foreign, again, to the clinician or the researcher, is that once you're developing a technology, there is a very strict timeline before whether, where that technology is of use, value, and marketable. So if you, and some of that has to do with a, a patent and patent timeline, and some of that has to do with just market interest. And one thing that clearly needs to be understood, if there's an entrepreneurial spirit out there for any of your listeners, is that once you've publicly disclosed a device or an idea, you can't patent that. So, and this was, again, completely foreign to a researcher because that's what we're all about is you know, doing our research and getting it out there and publishing our research but that basically slaps in the face of technology development because it limits your ability to create IP, intellectual property around this, and nobody, no business is going to be interested in your device and making it for you and yeah. putting it out there if there's no intellectual property. It's kind of a catch-22, and unfortunately, most of our wonderful physician scientists probably don't know about that. Yeah. So did you do it in reverse? I mean, I assume Detect is patented. A patent is filed. It has not been received yet. It takes three, four years to prosecute these patents. But yes, there has been one filed. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. David Wright from Emory University. We're talking about how to get a technological gadget from idea to reality into the examining room. If I was the head of Pfizer and was listening to this show, I would, I would hear bells going off thinking, wow, here's a, screening, a new screening test for Alzheimer's disease. We could get more patients on our medicine, Aricept. I'm going to call this guy up. We've thought of that. Uh, we haven't had any calls. We've thought about that. We've also thought about when they're studying a drug to see whether it works or not, 
here's a very rapid, brief test that potentially could be used for one of their outcome measures. Right. It would be good for outcome measures if it, if it works for them. That's right. If it doesn't work, we'll never hear from. We'll never hear the study existed. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> Last question, Dr. Wright. Anything you'd like to tell anybody out there who has the entrepreneurial spirit, who has an idea that you can encourage them to follow their dreams and actually go for it. Yes, I would say that tenacity is the key. You just got to keep plugging away. If you hear and read the stories of people who have created wonderful technologies in the past, they were told that that won't work by many other people, and they just kept at it. And that's what I would do, surround myself with experts and keep plugging away. Well, Dr. David Wright, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. If you'd like to comment or listen to our full library of shows, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, we'll give you six months free of streaming ReachMD over your home or office computer. Thanks for listening.